The Tevil Commute, Season 6, Episode 3, Teacher or Therapist, in which we look a little bit at psychology. Are you ready? Off we go. Hey, Linz. Oh, no, it's not Linz, is it? Hi, Kerry. <laughs> Hi there. You can call me Lindsay if you want. Um, no, it's quite nice. We've got rid of him. We can we can do what we like. He's away. <laughs> <laughs> While the cat's away. Exactly. Psychological. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, see, cause normally at this point you would go, "Hi, I'm Lindsay, and this is a TEFL commute, and we talk. And this is a podcast in which we, which the subject of teaching might come up, but he's away, so the te- the subject of teaching will come up." Um, I think is uh, what we can say. Yeah, oh, uh, and, and and it's a strange thing that it's a topic that he actually wanted to do, and he's buggered off. So um, so he's left us to look at it. Well, there we are. He'll just have to put up with what we've got to say. Yeah, so we're calling this episode Teacher or Therapist. And, and as I said, uh, Lindsay was the one that kind of, when we when we go through the topics at the beginning of a season, what shall we talk about? He said, oh, let's talk about Teacher or Therapist, because he'd read this article in uh, English Teaching Professional, which was called that. Uh, and it was about um, the idea of one-to-one teachers, especially being uh, kind of a therapist more than a teacher. So I, I like the idea of it, and I'm sure you've got a lot to say. So so Kerry, Teacher or Therapist, which which are you? <laughs> um, definitely Teacher. But I think we can all identify with those like one-to-one students who really just want to be listened to. So you think like, well, they might as well have a couch and you might as well just, and, and you know, like you just, you're there and then every now and then you feed in a question or two and they really don't look like they want you to teach them anything at all. They just, I had one wonderful student who told me so much about Argentinian history and art and and she would just talk for an hour practically non-stop. I don't think we got much into therapy, though. As I say, yeah, I've had one-to-one students like that that, you know, that have told me things. But then it's when they say, oh, yeah, and I've just committed to building a new house and I've taken out a mortgage for, you know, uh, uh, you know, and now I don't know what to do. And, and I think that at that point, the, the line is crossed, isn't it? And they're kind of, they're looking at you as a, as uh, for some advice more than just being a, a, a teacher, um, I would say. I, I, you know what, I've just, just said, going backwards, I should, I'm rude. There are people who might not know, know who you are, Kerry. I mean, you're obviously, you've been on the, the, the podcast uh, from time to time all the while we've been going, but do you want to just say who you are? Okay, hi, I'm Kerry. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I work on and off with Lindsay and with you, Sean, sometimes, yeah. Um, I'm a teacher, um, trainer, materials writer. Oof, I've been teaching for 30 years or more now. In fact, I I recently decided to stop celebrating my birthday and to start celebrating the number of years I've been teaching, because that's good then, because the next one will be 31. And I'm not going to tell you what it would be if it was my birthday. Okay. Uh, Yeah, but we're all of an age these days, you know. (laughs) 
Um, I think one of the things you teach, uh, where, where I don't anymore, is perhaps you you have a lot more uh, connection to teenagers and uh, and that kind of teaching where you're based. It, if I'm if, if I remember rightly, so would you say that there's a lot of um, there's a we we just talked about this one to one kind of therapy idea. Uh, does this does this happen in in teenage in, in when you find it as well? I mean, it's something that comes up. I think you we hear a lot in state school teaching, but about language teaching, are, are we therapists in in a teen classroom? I think in a very different way, aren't we? Because it's not the one-to-one, although, I mean, I don't know, some people do one-to-one teenage classes as well, but I'm pretty sure that they're not going to be um, the therapist-type conversations. But when you're dealing with, like, a class of teenagers, there's so much psychology involved in it as well. The, the whole group dynamic thing, the making sure that there's no cliques forming the whole kind of including everybody and then so many issues of motivation and development where are they at it's it's complicated and teen psychology is complicated you know Uh, all of which we're obviously completely trained to deal with i suspect (laughs) (laughs) looking at the you know an efl classic kind of private language school teaching well um, most of us won't have been. No, exactly. Yeah, just, I, I think if we're coming from that background, I mean, yeah. I mean the, then there's certainly I, there's very little of it on any of the training courses I've ever um, actually done or run, to be honest. So well, I, I actually started off doing a PGCE. So I I actually ah, okay. to be an L1 English teacher first in secondary school. So I do actually have some of the background of like India, a nine month university based course, and. Um, and it does, I think it does make a difference. It did make me feel much more confident in my first years of teaching going into a teenage class compared to a colleague. So that, was that specifically kind of um, input sessions then on the things you've just talked about? Yeah. Looking at cognitive yeah. development and emotional development. Yes, exactly. And, and, and then it kind of gives you a grounding, I think, to be able to learn more about it on your own, as it were. You know, having got, because, God, I did the PGCE, you know, 30 odd years ago. So um, that's all very old, and it'll be completely um, out of date. And yes, but but at least I feel like I have some kind of. Branding. But recently, I've been I was working with a, a teacher who's new to TEFL, but she her background was psychology. It's really interesting listening to her take on uh, classroom dynamics with especially teenagers. Okay, and, and her take was be what? Why would it be different from what what we might know? I think you come at it more from the. Um, the, the kind of the clash of the individual and the group and all of the mechanics that are happening in there from a not from a language point of view at all but from um, how they're responding to each other how they respond to the teacher uh, your role in in I mean it's, in, it's immensely complicated isn't it it's something that we all try and work out for ourselves um, and, and, and you have to you know instead of sometimes you feel like you're the one who be the therapist you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we might get to uh, get to us needing therapy later in the podcast. I'm just, I mean, I, I'm intrigued. I mean, because I think that this idea, of, I think this idea of therapy, the the psychological aspects of education, uh, especially, is something that is kind of of the jour, isn't it? It it seems to be have come. I think things come in and out of education, and at the moment, for me, this kind of topic of 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 therapy, psychology, well being, mindfulness, all these things is the one that seems to be talked about uh, from it. So I, it would seem that therefore there's a reason that that it's something that we should be really concentrating on, no? That, that, is it something that, we're, that we're, we're doing poorly in our profession, that we need to kind of 
take a big look at and, and change and change stuff on because it's this something in say mainstream education we've got now got educational therapists working along but i guess the difference in the education that we have is that we see our students so little whereas they see their students so much um i think there's one thing that we kind of do as humanistic negative teachers is that we invest in what what i think you'd call like a safe environment and that actually chimes right. in a lot with what people are talking about at the moment i think in the media um this idea of um making sure that every single student in your class feels that they're safe to make mistakes that that you're invested in them that you're giving them hope that they they you're giving them this kind of like can do attitude that then all of that i think is something that's pretty much imbibed into tefl anyway if you're kind of especially if you're like a, a human right. yeah i think so um, yeah tefl teacher then all of those things are things that for quite some time have been really important in in smaller groups it's, it's when you get to have a class of 35 or 40 then you have the challenge of being able to do the same thing with a larger group and i think that's something wow that's like really admirable mm. when you see teachers who are dealing with classes that size and bigger i guess another way of looking about it is, is, is i mean I, going back to where i started rather than perhaps the team team uh, element it should teachers who are not really trained to be therapists be walking into that area it's, you know so when my one-to-one -one student uh, starts telling me about all their financial woes um you know um should i you know say uh, should it be more of a case of hang on i'm a teacher uh, I'm not trained to do with to deal with this, or you know, am I actually going to am I, am I likely to cause more issues by <laughs> by jumping in there as well? And and it's also that that thing of like, okay, this problem that the student is um, has just kind of you know delivered me on a put on a plate in front of me. What am I supposed to do with it if I yeah it? exactly. I just correct the English. <laughs> I ah, sorry, Jim, let, just correct, just correct the English. I think this is a good time to just uh, have a listen to this. What is it? What's the matter? My family. Yeah. My family all dies in crash. In a crash. In a crash, my family dies. Yeah, you probably say you probably say have died. Actually, you probably use the past perfect. It's an action that happens in the recent past, but still the case now. Your family is still dead. So you'd say, my family have all died in a crash. Okay, uh, so that was a clip from I forgot what it's called. Uh, what's the comedy show called, uh, Kerry? Um, Smack the Pony. That's it. Yeah, I knew it'd come from it somewhere. Uh, uh, and I, I think that's brilliant. I'm, I'm glad you showed me it because it, but it's something we listen to, we hear all the time in kind of training, isn't it? It's this idea of listening. It goes back to what you were saying just before the break. Uh, you know, uh, should I correct the English or not? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a pretty full on example there, isn't it? Although, if you're being if you're being real really nitpicky, she also made a grammar mistake in fact. But anyway, we'll let we'll let that pass. But yeah, I mean, it also makes me think of those situations. I don't know if this is a cultural thing. I don't know if you've come across it or not. But um, in Spanish and Italian classrooms, you may have a student come into the group and kind of openly announce some bad news. And I know that that sometimes kind of some teachers are taken aback by that and they don't really know how to cope with it or, you know, sort of they announce a death in the family. Oh, right. So even if, even though the students might not know the, the family, they'll just come in and tell you this anyway. Yes. And then there'll be, it's almost as if it, and, and that's, that's fine for the, 
um, the, like the community of students there, and they all react. And um, and uh, but I've I've seen kind of younger teachers who maybe not so used to that kind of news being broadcast, not really knowing how to cope with the situation, you know. And so it's getting that clip is a slightly extreme example of it. But I can think of situations where, like the actual situation, um, maybe something that's happened in the news and, you know, kind of really affects the students that you're working with. And what exactly do you do, you know, sort of how do you handle those kind of very, very sensitive, delicate situations? No, and this idea of, of listening is, is, an, is an, uh, an, an active listening is actually an interesting area as well. I remember doing a... Um, a course um, many years ago that was the, one of the part of it was listening, the different ways to actually listen to people and respond to it. And it, I found it really fascinating simply because just because of the different levels you can have of listening. Um, um, and again, I don't think it's unless you've actually kind of explored active listening, it's difficult to understand um, what that means and how to react in different in different situations. And we, as you say, we as teachers, we're put in that situation all, all the time. Really, I've got to go back to the clip that reminds me of um, a self. You know, when you're uh, when almost first day of self to te uh, teaching practice. And this is true. The can there is a uh, the candidate uh, the part the trainee teacher was teaching the past simple, and she'd asked the students to make up make some sentences while teaching, uh, going over the past simple with the students who clearly knew the past simple. Uh, but um, she, the students had to create sentences with the past simple, and one of the student sentences was "my my my cat dies um, yesterday." Uh, Oh, and genuinely, she's like, my cat dies yesterday. And, and so, you know, rather, and we're talking about listening. And of course, the teacher, the, the, the trainee teacher, keen to show that they were, they knew what the past simple was. Like, you mean died? My cat died yesterday. Died. Come on, drill it. Oh, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> exactly the same. But you can imagine yeah, and, that situation is where you're kind of so totally, totally focused on the language that you just don't feel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You just. person at the same time. <laughs> it's it's kind of so, te so teachers should listen to content uh, and not uh, judge the content i think is what we're going there but i think we're talking we're talking about there we're listening there's this you kind of mentioned it again this idea of listening to each other i mean when we talk about therapy um i think especially in a staff room we we tend to become therapists for each other don't we i mean i the staff room is a place to kind of release and get rid of all the tension from a class and you end up uh, having to to listen listen to colleagues uh, I, I'm sorry you end up having to that sounds very negative um but you know what i mean i've got I, i've got five minutes and want a coffee what's up uh, <laughs> um but they, they would you agree that there, that there is that kind of teacher therapy uh relationship as well i guess it's really health healthy where it is isn't it i think you know it's kind of it's one of those health factors, I think, in a in a school is if there is a space where the teachers do feel like they've got a private space and they can talk to each other, and and um and that's not always. Some some schools don't have staff rooms. No, so some that's schools very true. Don't have don't have coffee breaks scheduled at the same time or whatever it is that like you know so don't don't organise teacher development moments with that kind of you know the the more social side to it. And I think it, it can be it's really important, isn't it? I think, you know, I, 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 I don't think I've ever worked anywhere where I didn't have that. And I'd hate not to. 
No, and certainly. Well, I, I mean, I don't have that now in my in my current environment. Well, I guess I, I guess I guess the podcast is my my uh, therapy. When Lindsay and James have to listen to all my uh, all my teaching issues uh, uh, with it, I, I agree. I, I think there's what I, I, I certainly. I, I, I just thinking about it, I, I, I certainly think yes, you, we need that release. But I think there's a danger as well. Going back to how we treat students, I mean, we talked, uh, we talked in the in the, in the beginning, um, in the, a bit about especially with teens about the cognitive development, their emotional development, and whatever. And it's very easy for for within that for uh, for one teacher to get an impression of a student that's completely different from from you know you and i could have the same student and we see them in different ways and i think one of the one of the dangers in inverted commas of this kind of stuff room on un, un, uh, releasing of, of tension is that the, the the students can get accidentally labeled in one way um maybe wrongly because there's a different relationship between that teacher and that student and you know if one of the things that we're talking about if we're talking about psychology is dealing with self-esteem and motivation and confidence and all that kind of thing is that is that it's kind of like chinese rumors that this student gets labeled chinese whispers sorry gets labeled as as a bad student and so on so i think we've got to be you know it's this idea of of listening and understanding uh, uh with it so i think there's it's it's definitely an important part of being uh, of being an educationalist is sharing sharing experiences and stuff. But uh, but there are some things I think we need to be careful of. Well, it's kind of the upside and the downside yeah. of the of the rant, isn't it? You know, because it's good to have a rant every now and then, and that you know people need to let off steam. But you need to somehow signpost it. You know, like okay, this is a rant now, and I'm not going to mean half of what I say anyway, and it's going to. But just let that person get it off their chest, and it's just when you sometimes you have that spiraling thing where the complaints just spread, and that can be that can be really negative. Mm. That can be worse. That can be worse than no contact, can't it? So, yeah. so is it the manager's job then? I mean, well, the, the director of studies, the the lie manager, the academic manager, whatever you, you want to call them, is it their job to uh, to be the listeners more than more than perhaps the teachers in the staff room? Hmm. Interesting. I don't know from. With that hat on, I would say that maybe that you might want to be taking the temperature of conversations in the staff room, and but if you don't want to be, you want you also want to be part of the conversations if you can be, and that can be quite difficult if there's a them and us kind of situation that you don't want that to build up either, and you can possibly be someone who kind of helps make the uh, the atmosphere more positive. Maybe I don't know. It's a very difficult one, that isn't it? Because also you know some people, some managers who try to do that because the textbook has told them that they have to and it just ends up sounding kind of false you know sort of oh page five told <laughs> yeah. me to go in on friday mornings and tell everyone to enjoy their weekend you know sort of and, and i can remember someone in fact ranting about a manager that they had like that years ago i'm not going to say in which school and um, it was kind of yeah it's a really fine balance isn't it and and it is. Uh, it's complete. It completely is. And I think uh, we've all. I mean, I do a lot of management training. And this idea. I mean, I think there's. You've got the old managers that set in their ways and probably do it, like you say, from page five or whatever. And then you've got the new managers that want to be different and perhaps then become and try too hard and become too familiar and, you know, and it, uh, uh, you know, you, you just don't want them being that 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 therapeutic in front of you. It's like go away and let me vent like with you, my colleague know, kind of thing. Students don't necessarily want you to be their friend. No, so it's like with going back to teaching teenagers again. Yeah. It's like, no, you're their teacher. That's who they want you to be. They want you to be their teacher, you know. And in some some cases, you're their manager, and they want you actually to be the manager and kind of make it clear as to where everybody stands. So it's kind of 
how far you can cross that boundary or not. Oh, very, very complex, isn't it? So I think we're just, let, let's just take a step back from the complexity for a moment. <laughs> let's listen to the angels' voices come in and, and hear some wisdom. Today's young people will someday ask for annoying metaphors. Yep, still soothing. Might be the sixth season, but then whenever I hear the angels' voices, it's, <laughs> a, it's that moment. And, and, and I'm not going to say this deliberately. It's that moment just to take a breath and reflect. Because um, I think that's kind of we, we've talked about therapy and whatever, and I, I think we're in, we, we, in this kind of in this final part. I, we, we've we've skirted around it, but again, one of those issues that, that's come up quite a quite a lot of late, and and and, and everybody. Is rightly talking about it now, now is this idea of the of the mental health of of a teacher, and if we are being therapists and dealing with all these the emotional baggage of everybody else, and and no matter what and with everything else we do, then there are possibilities that the teachers are are going to start struggling from uh, from kind of burnout and mental health issues, aren't there? Well, there are it, there are scary statistics from mainstream education, aren't there? Oh yeah. Do, do you have them at hand? Um, oh, hold on. So I've got one here is 70% of teachers and lecturers say their health suffered because of their job. And that's from Lovewell. Um, I was reading an, one about Scotland, which was saying 50%. But that would, in fact, they, they were saying that that was terrible and it sounds terrible, but it's much better than 70. Um, that um, record rates of burnout as well here and teachers leaving the profession and not being able to recruit teachers uh, and it, it's there's a lot of kind of bad news out there isn't there about that I mean, there's a lot of bad news about it but, I, but the bad news is always good in the sense that it does make us make us think about it so those those stats and those statistics and stuff that you're coming from they were they were from uh, a talk given by sarah mercer and luckily enough i've got sarah here to talk more about teacher well-being <laughs> So I'm with Sarah, Sarah Mercer, um, author of Exploring Psychology and Language Learning and Teaching, many other things. Uh, and she's, um, as, as, as I told you just before we started recording, Kerry and I have been talking about well-being. And, and I think any, any, any time that we talk about teacher well-being at the moment, um, you're one of the, the, the few people I think actually stood up and banging a drum for teacher well-being. It seems to have become a rather relevant topic Um over the last year or year or so, uh, is that is that because of, of teacher burnout? Is it because where you know you quote seventy percent burnout? There are articles in the Guardian that Kerry and I have just been talking about the, about the fact that education is running teachers down. Is it just everybody suddenly has gone? Oh, well being, um, or is it been sort of bubbling under for a while? Um, it's hard to say, to be honest, but I think it's sort of bubbling under generally. So I've, I've just done um, I've just done a talk in Malta where I was talking about well-being as a 21st century life skill. And when I was preparing the talk, um, I started to see how much, well, yeah, at least lip service is given to well-being in various curriculums across the globe from the learner perspective. So I think well-being has 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 taken a sort of has become 
center stage of the agenda for, for learners, and it's on, on a lot of curriculum now, but we still haven't really been talking about teachers so much. Um, teacher burnout's been a big thing in education for a long while, um, and in, in general education, certainly not in ELT yet. And I think the other thing that's happened at the same time is there's been the growth of the positive psychology movement. Right. Positive psychology was uh, started basically with um, Martin Seligman, um, who criticized the fact that psychology as a discipline was focusing very, taking very much a deficit approach. So looking at what was wrong and uh, how to get remedy that and get people back to average. And it wasn't looking at how people were doing really well, what that meant to do really well in life. And, and the, the term he uses is flourish. And that certainly has been a massive impetus for the well-being movement. Um, and, 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 and I mean, a lot of, uh, 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 without doing that, I mean, something I, I believe in, uh, mainly because I've read your books and seen a lot of people talk about it. But do, I mean, some people would say that oh, bleh, well-being, another one of these kind of psycho babble things and, uh, 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 and things are with it. I mean, yeah. how would you tell, how would you deal with people that say that kind of thing? Well, I'd probably say how incredibly short-sighted, um, but uh, it's not the first time that you have people that think that this is pop psychology and happyology, um, but that's <laughs> happyology, yeah, and it's not, and to be fair, that's not what um, positive psychology about. It's not saying that there's any way, you can't deny the negatives, it's not to, you know, negate the negatives that take place in life, because that's part of life, and they actually serve a useful function in our psychologies, but it's about getting some kind of balance and looking also at the positives, and there's plenty of good research to support this. Um, I think that's one of the things that the positive psychology movement has been very keen to do is, because it's got sort of some of the roots in humanism, um, and humanistic psychology, they were aware of the critiques that they received about not being very scientific in those days. So one of the things the positive psychology movement has done is emphasize very strongly the need to have empirical support to get research to support the claims that they're making. And so I think that's been very defining in the character of positive psychology as a movement. Um, I think some of it gets misappropriated. I don't know if I've probably also myself made mistakes and naively misinterpreted things along the way. Um, I think there's always a danger that if you've got, you know, one hour to talk about something, naturally you have to simplify issues to get a message across. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think there is a danger that in these little snapshot insights to things that um, people get a rather simplified view. And I'm sure that I'm myself guilty of doing that, but you, you, you can't then in a, in a one hour talk start going into all yeah, the I, I think where I was coming from is that I can I think if I think back over over my many years as a teacher I think if I went to my school director and started talking about uh you know teacher well-being they might yeah. look at me like I'm mad uh you know I, I, I think the yeah. tip I, yeah. I, I come from a, I come from a private language school background you know and you yeah. know, which tend to be you know people who who are, are have done four-week training course yeah. want to live in a country primarily uh they were you know and the average private language school timetable wants people working on sociable hours because they're before and after normal school or work they have split shifts and i can imagine going to some of my old uh school directors going uh you know i need a better work-life balance um and they're just laughing me out the door and i think that's where i was thinking about the idea of how people might see it as as happyology as you call yeah. it, it, it yeah. just like oh no i don't want that teacher and i found myself out of work yeah, um, yeah. no i think that's a very real problem and i think there's a, there's a few things about this is we don't really talk much about mental health but no. i think mental health is still one of our last remaining taboos 
in that we don't address it head on. We don't normalize it in terms of we don't talk about it very openly. We don't make this an issue that workplaces have a responsibility for workplace mental well-being. Um, we, we need to, first of all, make that sort of step, I think, to make people understand that physical and mental well-being are two sides of the same coin and that mental well-being is as equally important as physical well-being. And that it's actually very simple. If you want teachers to teach to the best of their ability, and if you therefore want learners to learn to the best of their abilities, you want teachers to be in the right kind of place to teach. Um, because, because you simply teach better. You can be more creative, more effective. There's quite a lot of research that shows that learner achievement goes up. Discipline problems go down when the teacher's in the right kind of place because you can deal with things differently. So I think, you know, we're at the beginning of a journey um, where we need to start raising people's awareness about the importance of uh, well-being, that it's not something hitty, hicky and fringe, but this is actually fundamental to our ability to teach well. And it's a, it's a responsibility of the workplace to create the kind of conditions that help support that. Now, it's not going to be easy to change that. Uh, and there are always going to be some compromises along the way. So I don't want to sort of oversimplify this, but if we can start talking about this and make it an issue, make it things that uh, directors of studies and heads of language schools talk about that they're aware of. Um, and I've got to say the fact that some people are approaching me and saying, I've heard you talk about teacher well-being. I'd like you to come and talk to my staff. I think it would be good for them to hear. Um, that's very reassuring to me that people are starting to take it seriously and say, yeah, actually, it's not just always about the learner. It's also about my staff and the responsibility after my staff. And ultimately, good staff in a good place mentally and physically means that you have happy learners. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's another thing that you um, I, you do talk about these negatives a lot. But you, but but you, I think every time I've seen you talk, you begin almost saying like teachers matter, you matter. Uh, and I think we, we should look at the positive part of this, that it is that the teachers that matter, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think people are learning that, that, that this is important uh, for it. Let's just, I mean, we, I don't have it for long, I know. So I'm just thinking, okay, so we, we, we talked about this idea that the, the, the educating language owners, language school owners, doctor of studies is beginning to, to seep in. But what advice might you give a teacher who, who wants to, Kind of deal with their own well-being. Uh, maybe doesn't have the opportunities of a of a of an open-minded director of studies. Where can they start? Are there steps that they can take on their own? Is that yeah? Does it need to be a school-wide implementation. Ideally, you want the support of the the environment that you're working in. Um, so one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous is that a lot of the advice that I find I'm giving and that you receive online is all directed at the individual because that's right. something you can control and something you have an impact over. Um, but really, this ought to be taking, base, taking place more systematically on the level of institutions and organizations as well. Right. An individual, there's there's plenty of, of I mean there's plenty of great websites. There's there's apps available now. There are things. I mean you have to be a bit of a discerning customer, but there are plenty of things that you can do to look at your own work-life balance. And I, I think I spoke to you that I don't like the term balance in the sense that there's no magic perfect ratio of work-life balance. You have to find your own work-life balance, whatever that means for you. Uh, and then a book by someone called Claire Fox called uh, Work-Life Symbiosis. And I just like the notion that it's not about balance in a sense, because balance implies there's some perfect balance that you're aiming for. But it's about finding a way to combine your work responsibilities and your work life with your non-work life in a symbiotic way that works for you. 
that you're happy with and you're comfortable with. And I think we have to be a little bit careful not to prescribe to people that there's one magic way to live your life. You, right. you, you have to live the, the life in the way that suits you as an individual and your family and your setting and, and your needs and your goals and your ambitions. So, uh, you know, we have to be careful people don't start feeling guilty that they're prescribed to. You must live your life like this. You must do it like this. You, you have to make those decisions for yourself. But I think there's quite a lot available. The, the one website I would strongly recommend is, um, it's called The Greater Good. Um, and it's a website hosted by Berkeley uh, in the state. Okay. And that's got a lot of um, very useful, uh, there's videos, books, recommendations. There's also things you can do in schools. There's things very much deliberately about education. And there's a website that goes with it called Greater Good in Action. Okay. And this is about actual specific activities and things that you can do for your well-being. And they are always provided with um, an explanation of what it is, why it works, and evidence that it works. So they cite research articles that support that this particular thing works. So that's a good place to start. Um, a book that I absolutely love and would strongly recommend, um, again, meant for general education, but I love the title alone. It's called The Elephant in the Staff Room. And it's by a guy called Chris, uh, Chris Eyre, E-Y-R-E. -E. And that's a very good book about managing stress and well-being as a teacher. Uh, and I, I love it. I think it's a great book. We, we, very... we were talking earlier in the episode uh, before we spoke to you about the staff room. And actually, it's an interesting place, the staff room, because it's a place where you can get support, uh, which, which obviously needs is a kind of a element of being well-being. There's also a place that can really stress you out because everybody's kind of venting their problems at the same time. It's, um... I mean, it's actually quite a, a tricky thing because one of the things is, is that to have a good whinge and a moan with somebody who can relate to what you're talking about is actually quite healthy. It's like flea picking. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> actually quite a good thing to get it off your chest with somebody who empathizes but you have to be careful not to get into this downward spiral yeah. of a complaining culture and sometimes staff rooms can can breed this complaining culture uh, and it's good to to be able to create that balance between getting stuff off your chest with somebody who can empathize but then also reminding yourself of, of the positives in our job why we why we like teaching what we get out of it the the, the positive things telling each other nice things that happened in our class things that we're pleased with or proud of or things that give us a lot of satisfaction or motivating so it's it's allowing ourselves the opportunity to have a good moan because it's healthy and we need to get it off our chest um, but also just not getting caught up in this focus on the negatives and getting in this complaining culture that, that, that can be a sort of downward spiral, but looking also at the positives and the good things about our work. Fair enough. So uh, go read that book, go visit that website, and they're, they're, they're good starting points for us uh, to, to explore well-being. And of course, um, if people are interested in, in the topic of, of psychology and language learning then, then, and teaching, then they should, of course, buy your book. <laughs> uh, and read that from cover cover to cover i uh, will put a link uh, uh, to it on the uh, on the the podcast website sarah i i uh, i i beg 10 minutes of your time and i've taken 20 so um I, I shall leave you there and i'm sure we'll come back again on this idea of of 21st century life skills and whether that's working working or not but thank you so much for giving us some of your time today not at all. Thank you so much for asking me. And if I can just say, if there is anybody that's working on uh, issues of teacher well-being or have got issues that they want to, you know, stories that they want to share, that we, I'm, I'm actually working on a book on this at the moment um, about using well-being as a perspective for uh, integrating in teacher development in a more holistic perspective. Um, I'd be happy to hear from anybody who's got things they think or ideas of things they think we should consider and include in the book. So anybody who wants to contact me with ideas that they think I should address in the book, then I'd be very grateful to hear from them. And do you, is that your email address? 
Yes, Sarah.Marissa at uni-grats.at. Yeah, cool. And we'll make that available. I assume that's okay with you. We'll make that available on the website for people to go to and, and find Super. if they want. So, Sarah, thank Thanks you much. so much. Go and enjoy your weekend, which I'm sure is going to be really busy. And uh, Thanks for your time for now. <laughs> thanks so much. Take care, Sean. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. I do find it interesting. It's a, it's a kind of a topic. I guess I, it's just something that, um, I, because I've seen a lot of talks and listened to a lot of people, I, I find this idea of teacher well-being um, just, you know, something I've never really considered that much before. Uh, I, perhaps it's just me lacking, not going down those routes. I, but this this idea of, of uh, I guess, of, of reflecting on what I'm doing if from a work-life point of view and from a stress point of view, is this something I've never done? So I always find it fascinating. What, what, is it, is it, have you always given it more credit to yourself or Kerry? Or? Okay, well, supposedly, you and I probably don't think that way. Whereas millennials do. Oh, I see. So it's, so it's back to the age. The newer generation are thinking much more about work-life balance. Right. right? Willing to stand up for their rights, as it were, a little bit more and not accept things that maybe we as younger teachers would have. Uh, ridiculously long hours, split shifts, travelling here, there or whatever, which can be very much part of a, um, of a language teacher's schedule, which I think really contributes to burnout but um but then they're also i think more sensitive to um any any symptoms of burnout and not that that means that they'll cope with them better but just that they maybe suffer them more i don't know there just seems to be a general sensitivity about it that maybe older managers kind of putting myself into that category i guess maybe need to be more sensitive to as well i don't know it's a it, it's a it's is is it worse now than before, or is there just more of an awareness of the need for this balance? I, that's an interesting question. I, I, yeah, I wonder. I don't know. It's kind. Of, I guess. I, I wonder if it is generational uh, uh, with it. Because I mean, yeah, no, I was kind of always. You know, you do the work that was put before you, uh, kind, kind of kind of thing. But I guess I mean if you if you go back to state school teaching, what I find, I mean, my my both my sisters are. Uh, um, in uh, state education and you know uh, I, when i think about the length of their working days and what they do in their working days come you know it's just ridiculous and you know and my sister's um, my oldest sister's actually a, a school director and you know they she spends so little time actually dealing with what i would call education you know it's all about all the other issues or almost all the therapy issues that we we're talking about so i i can really imagine it uh, to me uh, uh, um, a split shift is perhaps not in the same league, but um, you know, it's uh, one of those things. So I think, yeah, we. I think, but obviously, I think the the twenty first century, as people say, has led us to not have so much time. Strangely enough, we 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 have all these devices that do things for us, but it seems to we seem to spend more time doing stuff, don't we? So I think that it is easy for that work life balance. And certainly, I think as I've got older, I might have wanted more of a work life balance, but that's simply because I can't take I can't keep up the pace anymore. <laughs> I think that's a good point. Well, I think like it's also it's something that we all try and move towards, isn't it? It's like in you, at the beginning of your career, then. You're, you, you, you're quite willing to put up with conditions, but then you're always trying to work towards finding the schedule that works best for you or the workload that works best for you. I guess that, I guess that is something that you kind of get through experience as well. You have to 
know your working self, don't you, to be able to to find the answer to that too? Yeah, I think um, I said I kind of I do find it a fascinating area. I kind of stems back. I think. To me, as I said, I've seen a number of talks of it. I've seen Sarah herself give a couple of a couple of talks of it this year, and I, there's a quote in her talk I can't remember it's from, and, and, and she talks about teacher and learner well-being being two sides of the same coin. Um, and so, you know, if I don't look after my own well-being, then how am I able to, therefore, I guess, be be that person to look after my my students' uh, well-being. There's that typical metaphor, isn't there, of the um, oxygen mask in the aeroplane and that you, you should, you know, make sure that you've got your oxygen mask on first before you help anybody else. And it's kind of, it's always the same metaphor that's being used um, for parents and kids or teachers and their students, that if you're not okay, then then you can't help anybody else. Mm, true. I'm, I'm just going to, I guess we, we should be uh, getting towards, a, a, I know it's a serious topic, but we don't, we, we obviously the, 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 the podcast is only supposed to last the length of a commute. What else have we got? Uh, keep learning, be active. Oh, and give to others. So it's always better to give than receive. It's a nice, nice way yes. to finish perhaps. Yeah, that's nice. Do, do something nice for someone. And you'll feel good about it. And you've done something nice today because you've stepped into Lindsay's shoes and provided a, a, a much a much saner option to talk to on this podcast. So um, <laughs> I think listen to the end. Oh no, I wanted to listen to the end. Right, Kerry, thank you very much for your time. Uh, go and enjoy a walk, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on the podcast again soon. Bye for now. Bye. Bye, everyone. See you next time. As your commute is coming to an end, here's an activity to do with your class. Kerry mentioned taking a breath in class, so here's a mindfulness activity on that idea for the Greater Good website Sarah spoke about. It encourages you to slow down and give students time to think. Number one, explain to students. We know that we learn and teach better when we give ourselves time to think about the question before answering it. I will wait about three seconds after I ask a question before I call on anyone to answer. This will give you time to think about how you'd like to answer. I'll also give myself some time before I respond. Two, each time you do your three second wait time, use it to mindfully take a nice deep breath. Three, if you're standing, notice the weight of your feet on the ground. Four, allow your awareness to broaden so that you can take in the entire class. Five, scan the class, noticing each student as they raise their hand and choose one you may not have called much on lately. Six, as the student answers, listen mindfully and spend time considering it. You can find the instructions for these activities at our website www.tefelcommute.com You've been listening to The Tefl Commute, an original podcast produced and presented by Lindsay Clanfield, Sean Wilden and James Taylor. Don't miss out on any episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and by visiting us at www.tefelcommute.com